Uh, well, good morning. Uh, welcome. You got, we doing okay? Yeah, that sounds super hot. I don't know. I mean, the microphone. Um, yeah, golly. Uh, if you got a Bible, let's go Esther chapter 2. Uh, I know it's been a few weeks since we've been in there, but uh, we're going to try to pick up where we left off. Um, before we turn there, though, I, I just need to kind of share some things going on in my life. And um, yeah, it's, it's been one of those weeks. As a, as a pastor, uh, you get the privilege and really the dread of Sunday coming every week. I don't get the, the option of staying home. Um, and this is a Sunday I'd want to stay home. Um, it's crazy how quickly life can change. It changes so fast. We, uh, last weekend was just fantastic. We had such a great time. Uh, the hoedown was a blast. We had uh, just a great time in Sunday morning worship. Um, Sunday afternoon was great last week. Sunday evening, just had a, a great time. Invited a, a bunch of new people over to my house in the evening. We had a, a bonfire. It was so fun. I just sat outside and the fire was going and, and more and more people started showing up and uh, just had a great, great time. And uh, Monday, my day off, my uh, sister came to visit which is a blast, and uh, um, and then Monday we went to the doctor, um, and we found out that we lost our baby, and it's just been one of those weeks. You know, I know we're not alone in this. I know there are many, many people who've, who've had these types of losses, and um, I mean, what can you say? It's, it's horrible. It's awful. Life's sucks sometimes, you know? Um, and I get to preach Esther chapter 2, yay, you know? Like, it's awesome. Um, I, I don't want to make this about just my loss here and our loss, but, um, you know, I think we, we share in those losses together, though, uh, because, like I said, I'm not alone. Many of you have gone through this before, and um, I remember uh, the very first sermon I preached here, it's almost five years ago now, uh, five years ago, I think, in, in the new year. And I said a sentence uh, in that sermon that there's not one of us here whose life cannot be completely changed with a phone call. Um, I don't know, a lot of you were here. Um, but it's, it's pretty wild how, how quickly things can change. How, you know, two weeks ago we were up here and just super excited and we've known for six, seven weeks-ish, I don't know, a month that we're pregnant and and I, I go all in, you know, I get super excited and, you know, we got plans and then God says, nope, I, I got something different. And that, those are hard days. But I've been loved well by you. My family's been loved well. My wife's been loved well. Um, so thank you. Many, many of you who knew, a lot of you didn't know, obviously. And um, yeah, so um, thank you for mourning with us and uh, yeah, I don't know. I guess I got to preach now. Um, yeah, of course, it's Esther chapter 2. Great. Hey, bud. You going to preach? <laughs> he probably could. Um, no, I want to pray. Is that all right? Hmm. Let's pray together. Our Father, you are the God of the universe, and you are in charge of everything. God, we, uh, we sometimes wonder, what are you doing 
But we know, Father, that here stands a man who is the pastor, one of the pastors of our church. And out there are couples in both services who have been in this situation. And now the sense of empathy is different than it's ever been before. That's why the Apostle Paul said that you are the God of all comfort who comforts those who need it so that they can use that comfort with other people. And God, I don't know what you're doing. I only know that Josh and Megan need your arms around them and our arms around them. And we ask you, Father, to bring that great divine comfort so that in the years to come, wherever you place them, they might sit across the desk or across the coffee table and say, we have been there. We have felt the wound. We have felt the pain. And God, I just pray that you will bless Josh and Megan, minister to them in ways that we can't do for them what we cannot do right now. And God, allow him the freedom to take your word and expound it to us in these moments differently than he would have if this had not happened in the last week. So uh, I love him. He's become my dear friend. And uh, I pray, Father, that you will wrap your arms around him and bless him now. We ask it in Jesus' sweet name. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, man. Okay. Here we are. Ah, Esther 2. Just a a bizarre passage. Um, Honestly, it's a terrible passage. Um, Yeah, so... (laughs) In chapter 1, we're introduced to a king in uh, a kingdom, uh, a, a terrible king, uh, a real dirtbag, uh, power-loving, women-chasing uh, dirtbag. And we're introduced to this party. He throws this massive party. He's the king of, of Persia. Uh, he rules around 500 years before Jesus comes on the scene. Uh, he rules a massive empire, the world in power, superpower at the time. Um, this is Persia. This is about the size of the United States. Um, Persia took over Babylon. Remember, Babylon conquered Jerusalem, and, and Persia conquered Babylon. And, and Xerxes is kind of the third king in this order of kings in this time period. And he's thrown this great party in chapter 1. Um, and by great, I mean terrible. Uh, this party was filled with debauchery, filled with abuse, uh, where you have 10,000, 12, 15,000 people for six months getting hammered and drunk and doing all sorts of horrible things. And uh, the point of it was so that the king could show off his great wealth and his power and that he could try to convince everyone else that they uh, wish they were like him. At the end of the party, or somewhere really in the middle, I guess, the king gets this great idea that he should um, ask his wife to come and parade in front of all the men, perhaps in nothing but her crown, and uh, she refuses this uh, abusive request, and she says no. And that's basically where we pick it up in the story. 
Uh, we're about actually four years past that point, but in the, in the text, we don't have anything in between. So the, the queen has refused. Uh, she is banished from being queen, and um, Xerxes uh, is now in pursuit of a new queen. So I'm going to read a huge section of Scripture, all of chapter 2, well, two through, 1 through 18. So would you stand with me uh, as we have gotten accustomed to doing and read the Word of God together? I read from the English Standard Version if you want to follow along on your phone or somewhat. Uh, so Esther 2, 1 through 18. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out before the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of all the kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem and Sus of the citadel under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them. And let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa the citadel whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther was also taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him, And won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day, Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their, purif- of their beautifying, six months with oil and myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went in the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in. And in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again, unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who has taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tibeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. 
He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may take a seat. I'm going to take you on what might appear to be a massive, massive rabbit trail, and it might be very, very much that. My, my thinking has not been clear this week, and quite honestly, I changed 99% of the sermon. I, I don't usually have sermons uh, done weeks in advance. This one was done weeks in advance, and I changed everything. So I hope this uh, comes together. I think it will. Um, my first point and, and my main point for today um, is this. The Bible is not safe. Because the kingdom we live in is not safe. So let me explain, as we just read, uh, a passage in which I do not believe is safe at all, particularly for the younger ears. Um, As a parent, um, I've got two young daughters, and I'm introduced with all kinds of new challenges as a parent. Many of you are parents. You've been there for many more years than I have. And we're introduced to kind of this world in which we have uh, a certain, certain amount of control or authority over our kids. And we're, we're faced with the questions of, of what do we expose our children to? Right? Raise your hand if you've ever had that dilemma. Like, what do I let my kids experience? Most of us, I think everyone who's a parent raised their hand. Um, what do I let them see? You know, do I let them watch Daniel Tiger? You know, do I let them watch Veggie Tales? Do I let them watch Hunger Games? Do I let them watch Rocky Horror Picture Show? Like, there is a continuum somewhere in which we're trying to filter what we uh, let our kids have access to. You know, what do I let my kids hear? Uh, do I let them listen to certain music? Um, what about Taylor Swift? You know, do I let my kid listen to Taylor Swift? Well, 2010 Taylor Swift or 2015 Taylor Swift? I mean, they're very different people. Um, what, who do I let them spend time with? I mean, I, I know a lot of your kids. And I fear when my kids are with a lot of your kids. <laughs> what do we expose our kids to? Um, I, I think the word sheltered comes in mind. We, we want to shelter our kids, don't we? And, and I think, honestly, I think this is a good thing. Uh, I think the desire to keep our children from evil and from suffering and from pain uh, is a natural desire and it's a good desire. Um, but it becomes problematic very quickly in this world. And it becomes problematic for a number of reasons, two in particular. Um, the first one is there's too much evil in the world. I mean, no matter how high of a fence you build, no matter how thick of a hedge there is, eventually your kid's going to see things and experience things that you wish they hadn't, right? Perhaps right now in Sunday school, the very thing is happening of which I speak, <laughs> right? So, so you can guard your kid. You can, you can only make sure they watch G-rated movies. You can homeschool and make sure they don't have any other friends, make sure they only eat applesauce and oatmeal. But eventually, little Johnny and Susie are going to see things and experience things that you wish that they hadn't. And not only that, but the access that they have right now is incredible. I mean, the access that kids have to evil is far greater than my generation, and I'm not that old. I mean, in, in, a, in a phone, I mean, kids have access to unlimited amounts of evil. So it's hard to protect our kids against evil because it's everywhere. But that's only the first point. The second point is, um, even if you were to, be, to 
even if you were able to protect your kid from everything out in the world, let's say uh, you, you move to a deserted desert island, there, there are no other people, there are no other first graders, there, there's no Rocky Horror Picture Show, there's no guns, um, you couldn't protect them from all the evil in the world. Why is that? That's because evil starts here. Right? And so, absolutely, I want to protect my kids from evil. But the scariest of most evil, I believe, is disguised uh, in mom and dad themselves, and little Susie and Johnny also. And so, because this is true, we've kind of created this world in Christian culture where we've tried to set up these barriers, and everything is out here. If we can protect our kids from the sin out here, then they'll be okay. But the problem is, most of the sin that we really should be training and teaching them isn't necessarily the sin that's out here, but it's the sin that's in here. And I think we actually have, have really done a disservice to, to my generation, perhaps to many of your generations as well, um, in, in highlighting the fight the fight that's out there, rather the fight that's in here. And my hope and my plea is that we can be honest about where the real fight is. The fight is not primarily a censorship. The, the, the fight isn't that we can control everything that's going on out there. The fight is controlling, why do I have the desire to get everything that's out there and to see everything and to experience everything that's out there? The fight is in here. I hope um, that we can be honest as Christians about where our real fight is and where the real struggle is. If, if we have any hope at all in being honest in this struggle, I think we need to be honest um, in all aspects of our life, primarily uh, when it comes to the Bible and what the Bible teaches and what the Bible says. And there are times when you get to the Bible and the passage is extremely difficult. Right? There's a lot of things in our faith, in, in the Word of God itself, um, that are hard to understand, that are hard to believe. But I think we need to be honest with it. And I think we need to be honest with ourselves and where the real fight is. And that fight starts with us. It starts with the fact that my innate desire is to be God. That's the desire of my heart. The desire of my heart is I want to be sovereign. I want things my way. I want you all to worship me. I want to be loved and I want things to happen when I want them, how I want them. And that's easy to spot in a three-year-old, isn't it? It's a lot more disguised as a 40-year-old. But we have the same desires. You know, my three-year-old can, can scream when she doesn't get what we want. And when someone cuts us off, don't we want to scream too? You're in my way. So how do we be honest? How do we be honest with our fight? And how do we be honest with the word of God? I think we need to be honest when we get to texts like this. And I love the book of Esther because it's completely honest. And it's just a story. Like I said, it's very much like our lives. So we get to see all different parts of the life and story of Esther. The honest version of it. Um, many of us know this verse in the story of Esther. It's probably the most famous verse. Anyone, I, I want to do a little uh, call and response here. Anyone think that they can name the most famous verse in the book of Esther? Yes, Andy. For such a time as this, thank you. And you even said it exactly how I wish you'd say it. For such a time as this, right? Who, who's heard that? For such a time as this. And I don't want to get ahead in the story, and I don't want to tell you exactly what happened, but guess what? You've all probably, most of you have read the story, and you know that for such a time as this. But what are the four words that are said before for such a time as this? Mordecai is speaking to Esther. And he tells her this. 
He says, and who knows whether or not you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And today what I want to look at is life in the kingdom. He's speaking to Esther. You have come into the kingdom. She, she finds herself in a, in a terrible situation. And he says, for such a time as this, but the precursor to that, you don't get to for, you don't get to that qualifying word until you find yourself in a kingdom. A kingdom in which I think we need to be honest about the kingdom in which we live in. Mordecai says, for we are in the kingdom. You and I are in the same kingdom. We actually have very similar kings. So what is this kingdom? What is the story? What is the kingdom in which Esther is a part of? Because if you don't get the kingdom, you don't get for such a time as this. The kingdom... Like I said earlier, it's a, it's a terrible kingdom. So what's happening in Esther chapter 2? I read it, and I will do a, a brief uh, summary. Um, we have ABC's new primetime special, One Night with the King. right? And this is not the Christian version of One Night with the King. I, I'm sorry, I watched that movie and it made me upset. This, this is not a... Uh, a happy, fun-loving Xerxes who, who loves kittens, who waxes his chest, and, and who just really feels bad for all these women who are presented to him. I mean, that's the Christian video. It, it's a cute video. I hope when Charlotte's 11, her and her friends can watch it. But that's not the Bible. That's not being honest with the text that's in front of us. In the kingdom, Xerxes is not a nice guy. He's a nasty guy. In the kingdom that we live in, nasty things happen. So here we have this competition. All right, if you've got young ears, maybe sense of them. I'm going to give you a PG-13 version. Uh, He gathers all the most beautiful women in the land. And the competition is one night with the king. Literally, I'm going to sleep with every beautiful woman that I know exists in this kingdom. And when I find someone who I really want to sleep with again, I'm going to make her queen. There's no courting, there's no long walks on the beach, there's no going to dinner, there's no going to movies. Verse 14 says, they go in in the evening and leave in the morning. They go to his bed, that's all he wants. And Esther is very much a part of this. It's disturbing, it's wrong, it's evil, it's heinous, and it's life in the kingdom. And guess what? It happens everywhere in our culture too. And guess what? It happens right here. It happens physically. It happens visually. It happens mentally. And hiding and pretending that we don't live in this kingdom and hiding and pretending that the kingdom doesn't begin here is a fool's game in which we all lose. So to understand the story of Esther is to understand the kingdom in which you and I and she lived in. Esther's kingdom was broken. Her king had a nefarious competition trying to satiate his evil desires. And Esther is broken because I believe she participates. Now here's where I, I want to be uh, up front. And I want to I tell you that this is uh, my observation. It's an interpretation. Again, this, it's a story. There's no commentary on it. So you can disagree with me if you want. I think there's a lot of freedom here to disagree Um, But I want to tell you what I believe is my interpretation of what was going on in Esther in this situation. So what was Esther doing? 
verse 8, we read this. Esther was also taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who was in charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food. And with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. I believe that Esther was a willing participant. Now, some of you might read this and think, well, certainly she was a victim. And and absolutely, I do believe that there are parts of that that are true. I, I believe that she was a victim on many levels. But I don't believe that story fills itself out all the way through. From what I read, there was no part of her that stood up to this competition. There was no part of her that said, absolutely not. I refuse to be a part of this. From what I read, she hides who she is. In fact, she actually changes her name from Hadassah to Esther so that she would not be known as a Jew. From what I read, she eats the king's food. A a Jew should not eat the food of the king. From what I read, she participates. We read this in verse 15. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charged the woman, advised her. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. She's winning. I don't see a big struggle. I see her winning, which means that she looked the best and she was best in bed. She's winning this competition. I don't see her fighting the culture. I see her embracing the culture. I don't see her standing up for her faith. I see her hiding from her faith. And I think the question is, how are we like Esther? Perhaps, I mean, there, there are many reasons as to which why she would have wanted to hide in this situation. Maybe some of you are, are a little bit upset that I'm taking this view, and that's okay. You're allowed to be. Um, but I believe Esther participated. In, in the story of Vashti, Vashti stood up. You know, maybe you're thinking, well, Esther was just doing this to protect her life so she wouldn't get killed. Vashti didn't get killed, and she said no. Perhaps Esther was afraid. So she hid from her faith. Perhaps she enjoyed it. Perhaps she wanted to be on The Bachelor. Perhaps she wanted to be one of those girls. Perhaps she was enjoying the pleasures of Babylon. Perhaps she loved the palace. Perhaps she had no faith at all at this point. I don't know. This is all speculation. We don't know. The text does not tell us. I'll tell you that many times. But what we do know is that if she had a faith at this point in public, it was absolutely hidden. And if she had one in private, it was hidden enough that no one knew who she was. And I believe that there is a, is, is a threat to many of us that in our culture we should be like Esther. That we should perhaps have a private faith, but in public, stay back. That when it's time to stand up, when it's time to say no, it's far easier just to enter into Babylon and go along with the festivities. Perhaps it is fear of rejection, fear of isolation, fear of failure that we too hide back from our faith. And maybe in circles like this, it's easy to be bold and to stand up. But perhaps when you're at home or perhaps when you're in the office, your faith might not be quite as strong. In private, maybe we're bold. In public, we pull back very much like Esther. Maybe you're not like Esther at all, though. 
Maybe you are bold in your faith. There are many examples of people in the Bible who are bold in their faith. And I'm going to look at one of them who was alive during the exact, well, around the same time, about 100 years earlier, a man by the name of Daniel who actually found himself in a very similar situation as Esther. Daniel chapter 1, we read this. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So this is Jerusalem, they're conquered by Babylon. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands and some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. And the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, And skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. So when a a country would overtake another country, very often they wouldn't kill everyone. They would keep many people alive, particularly the stronger families, the families of influence. And they would take these young kids and they would integrate them into their society. And this is what the king was doing. Nebuchadnezzar was saying, I'm going to get the brightest, the youngest, the strongest, the most handsome, those who have influence, and I'm going to integrate them into Babylonian culture. Read this in verse 5. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. So, very similar situation. Different cultures, trying to integrate, very different results. Verse 6, among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azra of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called uh, Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Verse 8 is key. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to be defiled. And you go on in chapter 1. And not only Daniel, but these three men refused. And you go on to chapter 3, where King Nebuchadnezzar builds this great altar. And it's a, it's a call to everyone in the land that you all are to bow down. And we know this story. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they say, no. I'm, I'm willing to risk my life. I'm willing to die. We will not enter into your culture. I will stand up for my faith. And what happens? You know the story. They're thrown into the fire. Eventually, God saves them. In Daniel chapter 6... Another king is here. This is now Cyrus, or Darius, sorry. Darius is king, and he makes a decree. And the decree now is that no one is to pray to any other one except for him. Does Daniel say, okay, I'm afraid for my life. I'm not going to follow this. No, he boldly goes to his rooftop, and he says, I'm not going to give in to my culture. And he's thrown into the den of lions. And you know the story. God saves him. And I could tell you at some point, you know what, don't be like Esther. Don't, don't give in. Be like Daniel. He stood up. And, and while that is true, that is only part of the story. See, the whole story is a lot more like this. There was a young girl, Esther, and there was a young boy, Daniel, who both were in wicked kingdoms and who both need rescuing, but not only from their kingdom, but from themselves. Their hearts needed rescuing. In Daniel chapter 9, Daniel himself confesses that he is a wicked, sinful man. 
that he needs a better king and a better kingdom. See, you know what being good got Daniel in a wicked kingdom? It got him thrown into the lion's den. And you know what being bad got Esther in a wicked kingdom? It got her the crown of Persia. I think it's quite ironic. Esther never should have been in Susa. We're going to get to that in a couple weeks. She never should have been there. She should have been back in Jerusalem. The people were given the freedom to go back. She should have gone back. Daniel never should have been in Babylon. Jerusalem never should have been captured in the first place. In this earthly broken kingdom, everyone eventually loses. Everyone. And the only way out is to be brought into a new kingdom and to be given a new heart. See, both Esther and Daniel needed relief from their kingdoms, and both of them needed a new king. And the only way to get a new kingdom is to get a new king. I want want you to hear this language in Daniel 3 and Daniel 6. I think it's profound in terms of kingdom. This is King Nebuchadnezzar. This is him speaking after he sees Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, not burn in the fire. He says this in Daniel 3, verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound in the fire? They answered him and said to the king, True, O king, he answered and said, But I see four unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Jumping down to 28. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angels and delivered his servants. And then listen to his response in verse 4. This is, again, the king of the kingdom of Babylon. He says this, How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. He's recognizing there's a better kingdom with a better king. And then listen to the words of Darius, who also speaks of the kingdom. This is Darius in Daniel chapter 6. He responds to all the people and he wrote this, nations and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. Why is that? For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed and his dominion shall be to the very end. See, a new king gives us a new kingdom. And like Esther, we are living in a broken world where things happen that never should happen. I never should have lost my child. That never should have happened. But in a broken kingdom, that happens. In a broken kingdom, I hurt people. In a broken kingdom, I'm a wicked father at times. In a broken kingdom, I'm selfish. In a broken kingdom, my heart's bent is to want to be God. But in a new kingdom with a new king, we have total, total freedom. I want to read how this happens. I, I was thinking of the song here too, and I, it's, it's brilliant how this all comes together. The song we, we sang before I got up here, we sang, Oh death, where's your victory? Oh death, where's your sting? And I'll be honest, like, there still is sting in death. There still is on this side of things. In 1 Corinthians 15, though, this exact phrase, we're given the explanation as to why we can celebrate and as to why this is true. I want you to hear this. Um, 1 Corinthians 15. 
He says, I tell you this, brothers. Um, And kind of the question is, what brings this new kingdom? What brings a new king? He says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So we don't get a new kingdom right here and right now. He says, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling, twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, so this is when this happens. It's only when the perishable puts on the imperishable and mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. So it's not until that moment that we can actually say this, and then here we get the phrase, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? So right here and now, in this messed up kingdom with messed up kings, with a broken heart, I have lost. I have brokenness. I have pain. I have suffering. But one day, in a kingdom that is not perishable, I can say, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? 56, the sting of death is sin. The sting of death is life in the broken kingdom, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through Christ Jesus. Thanks be to God who gives us a new king and a better kingdom. Therefore, now here's our call today. I want to end on this note. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast. Be immovable. I mean, it's, it is so hard to be immovable in this kingdom, isn't it? And when we found out on Monday, you know, they give you the sonogram and the doctor left and we're in the room and we're both just crying. And, and I said, okay, let's pray. I don't know what to pray. I, I literally don't, I don't have words. I, just, I said, God, you're good. And later that evening, maybe not, not even that evening, a couple days later, in, in regard to the steadfast and immovable, my wife said to me this. She said, I'm so glad that I have good theology and that I love God because there was never a part of me that went, man, what did I do wrong to deserve this? And I had to be honest with her. I I said, you know what? For a nanosecond, I did have that thought. For a split second, my mind went, man, what did I do? And then God reminded me, no, 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 that's wrong thinking. You're still in this kingdom. And in a broken kingdom, people break. But in his kingdom, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that the Lord that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In his kingdom, we receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken. All right, Hebrews 12. I'm going to end on this note. We'll go to communion here. Hebrews 12, 28, 29 says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Would you pray with me? God, you are a better king and a better kingdom. Lord, I I thank you that we can be honest about where our struggle and where our fight is. And that's not just to keep the world out, but that's for me to recognize my heart. 
in my heart that needs to be made new. God, I thank you that you've made a lot of promises too. Promises for a better kingdom. I'm going to I'm going to read to you, God, the words that you promised us out of Ezekiel 36. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, this is God speaking through Ezekiel. And God says this, It's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations. That's that broken heart in me. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name. That's my great king saying, I'm going I'm to make my name known which has been profaned among the nations, in which you have been profaned among each other. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before your eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you to your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. And I will remove your heart of stone, and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I will give your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. That's a better kingdom. And that's a better king who fixes the real problem, my heart of stone, and gives me a heart of flesh. Jesus, I thank you that today we can celebrate you. I thank you that we have the table of communion that we can go to individually, that we can take that cup, we can take that bread, and we can say, God, you are the better king, and your kingdom is better. And through your death, through the shedding of your blood, for the giving of your life, you've given me a new heart. God, let me be honest. Let us be honest with your word. And let us know that We have all come to the kingdom for such a time as this. But God, we are in this kingdom. And in this kingdom, we suffer and we have pain, but there will be a day when we will go to your kingdom, a better kingdom, and we await that with eager expectation. We love you, Jesus, and we pray all this in your name. Amen.